This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone, where I'm very pleased this week to be bringing you part one of a two-part miniseries on a perennially fascinating topic. I think it's fair to say that most of us are very interested in death. Certainly, if you look around at popular culture, you might go so far as to say that we're obsessed with death. And when it comes to the philosophy of death and dying, there's a conversation that's been going on since humans first developed the capacity to think and reflect. Patrick Stokes is an associate professor of philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne, and he's produced this two-part series on what's new in this very ancient field of philosophy. To philosophize, at least according to Plato, is to prepare for death. And death is still one of the most persistent preoccupations of philosophers working today. Recently, after two years in which death was an even more salient topic than usual, philosophers from around the world gathered at Deakin University in Melbourne for the long-delayed Fifth International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying Conference. It was a great opportunity to speak to philosophers working at the cutting edge of questions about when we die, who we should save, and why we should care. Over the next two episodes of The Philosopher's Zone, we'll be hearing about several of the current hot topics in the philosophy of death and dying. One issue that philosophers have been late to the party on is grief. Well, philosophers haven't always neglected grief. It was a fairly popular subject of discussion for the uh, ancient Roman philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. But it is true that philosophers haven't said as much about grief as you might expect, given that it's a very prominent feature of human life. I'm Michael Cholby. I'm Professor and Personal Chair of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Surprisingly, Michael Cholby's recent book, Grief, A Philosophical Guide, is in fact the first book-length philosophical work on the topic of grief. So why haven't philosophers paid more attention to what seems to be a universal feature of human experience? I think there are three reasons why philosophers have neglected grief. First of all, for a long time, philosophers have simply neglected the emotions, and grief is not a simple emotion to understand. And so, since philosophers had not been thinking about the emotions for very long, perhaps uh, grief, because it's a particularly difficult emotion to understand, was simply not on their radar. A second reason is that on a certain view of the well-lived human life, grief is a phenomenon that isn't worthy of our attention. So, for instance, if you hold the view that what makes a good human life is that we live uh, lives of self-sufficiency, that we live lives in which we're invulnerable to facts outside ourselves, then you might think that grief is not a a good sign. That is to say, it's an indication that you haven't lived a well-lived life. You've made yourself too vulnerable to facts besides um, the facts about your own soul or state of character. And finally, I think one reason philosophers have neglected grief has to do with gender. Most philosophers have been male, and grief is often depicted as a stereotypically feminine emotion or stereotypically feminine condition. But let's back up a second. What is grief? 
My name is Yelena Markovich. I'm a PhD student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and I'm doing my dissertation on transformative experiences and grief. Um, grief research is pretty new in philosophy. I think one predominant account is that it's a type of emotion. And then obviously, given that there are different accounts of emotion, different people uh, have different stances on that. For example, Martha Nussbaum thinks it's a type of judgment. And so all of the the different um, thoughts that you have in grief are unified by this judgment that something uh, very important to you and your well-being is gone. Um, and then there's the account of uh, Michael Cholby, who thinks that grief is a process of emotionally attending to the change in the relationship. And that process of emotional attention unifies the different um, emotional states you have in grief. And then there's a, a phenomenological approach. Matthew Ratcliffe has an account of uh, grief as the loss of a system of possibilities. So uh, the relationship that you have with the loved one has associated with it um, all of these different possibilities for thought and action that make a lot of your activities and your experiences and the way you experience things that's meaningful, intelligible to you. And there's a collapse of that system when that person is, is gone. I was also curious to know how philosophers understand the difference between grief and mourning. From what I understand, a lot of people don't focus on that. So they focus on grief, which is like the experience and the the emotional experience. And then mourning is the ritual and the, the societally recognized ways of behaving to um, to acknowledge the loss. So, so that, I think, is a rough distinction that people do adopt. So I think of mourning as behaviors. That is to say, we're mourning when we are attending funerals, when we are listening to eulogies, when we are compiling obituaries and so forth. Some of what we're doing when we're mourning is also commemorating, that is to say, attempting to create a kind of legacy for a deceased person. But not everyone who is mourning or commemorating is also grieving. Because as I see it, grief is fundamentally the psychological process that is instigated when someone who matters to us in a particular way dies. As I articulate it, I think we grieve those who's, uh, who die and who we have invested our identities in. And so what we're grieving about or for uh, when someone else dies is the fact that we cannot continue to have the relationship with them that we had before. After all, when you have a certain kind of relationship with someone, you can't continue to uh, relate to them in precisely the same way once they've died. So I think in the end, grief is a kind of response to a certain uh, very specific personal loss. Many who are mourning or commemorating are also grieving, uh, but the uh, contrary relation doesn't necessarily hold true. But this way of looking at grief suggests that to grieve is ultimately not about the dead person, but about ourselves and our own loss. Does this way of thinking about grief make grief seem a little bit too self-focused? Oh, yeah. Um, and some people just bite that bullet. Like Michael Cholby just says grief is a self-focused emotion. And so his justification for that is, well, you don't grieve people who have died who don't have a sort of importance to you and to your well-being and to your you know, practical identity. And so he thinks, well, that's actually, you know, it's a feature, not a bug. Well, on my view, it is important that grief is a response to a loss. There is a way in which grief is an egocentric response. We don't grieve every death that occurs in the world. We only grieve the deaths of those who matter to us in the very specific way I've suggested, namely that we have invested our identities in their continued existence. 
Now, in saying that, I don't mean to present grief as a self-centered reaction itself. Very often in the course of grief, we will be thinking about the deceased individual. But of course, we're thinking about them for, if you will, uh, egocentric reasons, that they matter to us in a particular sort of way. But it's also important to keep in mind that the uh, individuals in whom we invest our identities, those individuals whose deaths will lead us to grieve them, we can have our identities invested in them in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people that we have our identities invested in say they are our role models. We will not necessarily grieve for them in a way that involves any particular great sadness about the loss they feel. It's mostly about the loss that we feel. But of course, some of those that we uh, grieve for are those whom we love. And when we love someone, it's very likely that we will have their uh, lives and their experiences and so forth foremost in our minds as we grieve. So I think it's important that an account of grief makes sense of how it is fundamentally a uh, reaction about ourselves or about our relationship with the deceased. But of course, when our relationship with the deceased is a particularly intimate one, a lot of the experiences or feelings we undergo with grief will make reference to the deceased person too. Mourning is often depicted as moral in character. You're supposed to mourn certain people in certain ways and for a certain period of time, even if the specifics differ between cultures and historical epochs. Grief, on the other hand, is sometimes discussed as a problem to be fixed rather than a duty to be carried out. Indeed, the DSM-5, the Handbook of Psychiatric Diagnosis, lists prolonged grief as a medical disorder. But if there's a duty to mourn, is there also a duty to grieve? Robert Solomon, for example, defends the view that we have a duty to grieve those who we love. So he thinks grief is a continuation of love. And if you love someone and they die, you, you have an obligation to grieve them. And then if you hold something like that view, then you do end up with a problem because a lot of us, well, about 50% of people um, have what's called resilient grief. So they stop grieving after a few weeks and grieve, they stop grieving in the sense that they stop feeling immense you know, distress and disruptions to day-to-day functioning. So if you think that you have an obligation to grieve, depending on how much of an obligation you, you know, how much you think you have to grieve to fulfill that obligation, then you do end up um, with this situation where psychologically we're just wired to um, not grieve as long as we ought to, quote unquote. There's been a discussion in recent philosophy about what we might call the problem of resilient grief. The problem is roughly this. If the facts that are responsible for us grieving, the facts that lead it to be justifiable or intelligible that we grieve persist, then why is it that grief doesn't persist? If, say, your grandfather dies and you experience uh, this loss, you experience grief, why is it that grief goes away given that the loss doesn't go away? Um, I think your mileage may vary, right? Whether you think it's a problem. Dan Muller argues that it is a problem in some way. He argues that we have reason to regret it because it means we're not as important to each other as we believe that we are. And it means that we're sort of deluded about our condition. So if you're able to stop grieving so quickly, then this person didn't make much of an impact in your life if you were able to move on so quickly after their death. And then the, you know, the, the argument, the epistemic or, you know, appreciation argument is um, grief is part of how we recognize that this loss has occurred. And so if you don't grieve or don't grieve for very long, then you're not really registering it as much of a... Lost. 
Now, as I see it, this is a problem that arises only if you have a certain way of thinking about what the uh, grief reaction itself is. If you think of the grief reaction as simply a kind of perception of the loss, then I think that this problem of resilience may strike you as a problem. But in my estimation, we shouldn't think of grief as simply a perception of a loss. I think it's actually a way of attending to, and as to say, paying attention to a loss. And how long we pay attention to a loss seems to depend upon not merely uh, how we perceive it, but also what sorts of goals, concerns, or aims are paying attention to that loss has. I think we should pay attention to a loss only so long as, uh, in so doing, we are benefiting from doing so. We are processing the loss, figuring out how to uh, lead full and complete lives despite or because of the loss. So as I see it, we shouldn't be too worried about this, this so-called problem of resilient grief because the resilience uh, doesn't necessarily indicate that we have lost touch with the deceased or that somehow the loss doesn't matter. Rather, it simply indicates that it's no longer uh, wise or prudent uh, for us to be psychologically invested in our loss uh, anymore. The loss still counts, but it doesn't uh, continue to make sense for us to pay attention to. Perhaps there are good reasons not to grieve too long. But as Jelena Markovic explains, resilient grief may point to something deeper that we really should lament. We have to be this way because, um, or we're evolved to be this way because we live in these conditions of pervasive impermanence. So we're losing things that are important to us all the time. People and, you know, valuable objects and, and goals and projects are, you know, changing and, and we're losing them all the time. So, so loss is pervasive and ordinary. And because of that, we've evolved this adaptive system that makes us resilient in the face of these losses. And so if there's anything that's regrettable about resilient grief, it's this underlying condition that necessitates that we're uh, resilient. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone, and this week, Patrick Stokes is taking us through some of the new developments in the philosophy of death and dying. It's great that philosophers have started paying attention to the issue of grief. But to grieve for someone, you first have to know that they're dead. Now, for most of human history, this was pretty straightforward. Hearts, lungs and brains all stopped working at more or less the same time. Then, relatively recently, things changed. Actually, it uh, happened due to advance in intensive care units and also due to advances in organ transplantation. Uh, starting from the 60s, I'm Piotr Novak. I'm from Jagiellonian University. I'm assistant professor there. We are capable to prolong uh, existence of human body uh, with life functions uh, for quite long period of time due to um, inventions like a ventilator. And uh, also starting from that time, we are also uh, capable to retrieve and transplant organs. So in the 60s uh, of last century, the dilemma um, appeared uh, because we uh, there was this kind of situation that we had a number of people on intensive care units without any chances of regaining consciousness 
And at the same time, we had uh, some uh, number of people whose life was endangered and it was capable to rescue them through organ transplantation. And due to this uh, coincidence, uh, the controversy regarding definition of death emerged and that w the, the idea appeared to refine death in terms of functions of a brain instead of basing our concept of death on a, um, a circul circulatory and resp respiratory functions. So uh, there was this idea to refine their uh, death in terms of neurological functioning. Once technology made it possible to keep people alive without any possibility of a return to consciousness, which is arguably the thing that we actually care about in staying alive, both philosophers and clinicians started to wonder whether the standard criteria for death was still fit for purpose. As Piotr Novak explains, new definitions of death began to emerge. Now we've got three competing uh, criteria. The one is the traditional criterion of circulatory respiratory functions. So this is the criterion uh, which is, I think, very straightforward for many people that um, death is associated with uh, with cessation of heartbeat and uh, respiration. We've got uh, also this uh, mainstream in terms of legal acceptance criterion of brain death, according to which person is dead if all functions of the brain, including brainstem, ceases. And we've got also a higher brain a criterion, according to which is actually not applied by any state, which is still under the uh, investigation among the philosophers. Uh, according to uh, these philosophers, we should rather refine death in terms of uh, functions of uh, brain which are responsible for being conscious. And intensive care physicians aren't the only ones looking to expand and extend human life. You may have heard the urban legend about Walt Disney being frozen after his death. Now, that's a myth, but it is true that around the world, thousands of other human bodies are stored at temperatures as low as minus 196 Celsius in the hope that they can be revived someday using future medical techniques currently unavailable to us. But if death is the irreversible loss of bodily function, as both the medical and philosophical communities understand it, are the cryonically preserved dead right now or alive? You know, all of this is connected with that idea of, uh, you know, when, when we can keep somebody's heart and lungs going uh, basically indefinitely, this could be kind of seen as a, as a further extension of that, that we might be able to prolong somebody uh, indefinitely, at least in an indeterminate state. I'm Adam Buben. I'm a uh, university lecturer at Leiden University in the Netherlands. One thing I've uh, done a lot of work on recently is the way that transhumanists or people kind of in that direction are, uh, you know, are interested in cryonic preservation and this idea that that might provide a lifeline while we wait for other technologies to develop to extend life. Uh, and so that connects with this issue of how technology affects our understanding of what it is to be dead, because you end up with these people who are, you might say, at least they would say, you know, in some kind of an indeterminate state. 
you know, they're, they're not alive exactly and, and legally certainly not, but insofar as there's some slim chance that they will be reanimated someday, it might be hard to say that they're entirely dead. So you get this uh, kind of princess bride sense of being only mostly dead. One could argue that they are in a state of suspended animation. So this kind of state is uh, the one that actually there are some animals that it's quite normal that they are in this state. Some some species of frog are, are frozen for a very cold night. Their heart stops to function, their brain stops to function. And uh, when the sun rises and warms their bodies, they, they regain, regain their functioning. And no one has at the moment uh, proven that something like this could be possible for uh, humans. Uh, so at the moment, I would say that people like Walt Disney, if he would really be frozen, are in a state of suspended animation. So it's a state between life and death. But talk of suspended animation or hibernating frogs takes us a very long way from the binary conception of life and death that's built into our medical and legal practices. I think it's, uh, we cannot say for sure that if someone like like this is dead or alive. Yeah. And this is perhaps a little bit controversial uh, implication of, of my theory. Uh, I, I, I bit this bullet. Well, I think in, this is maybe a, a bigger problem, a more general issue, right? We, uh, you know, we like neat categories. Uh, we don't want to think about the the hard nuances. Uh, it turns out, you know, we, we don't really know what we're talking about if we look closely at it. But uh, if we squint our eyes and look at it from a distance, then then we think we've got things in the world figured out. And I think that's the case with death. We need things to be kind of neat so we can redistribute their wealth and move on to the next generation. So I think that's why this kind of indeterminate state is uh, can be kind of disturbing to some people. So do cases like cryonics and the more immediate disagreements about whole brain versus higher brain definitions of death suggest that biological reality is just too messy for the binary concepts that we apply to it? And if that's the case... Should we just ditch our concept of death? Yeah, perhaps it might be a good idea to just abandon the concept of death and to say that actually the moral rules that we used to adopt for the centuries, like the rules that make uh, acts like killing uh, morally wrong, are just wrong. Perhaps we should focus on some other concepts, like, like the concept of moral status, uh, and we perhaps we should just abandon the whole, whole talk of death and for our uh, practical reasons and to adopt considerations about moral status. That's one option. The other is, option is to try to say that actually what is crucial about death is not something that has uh, something to do with someone's status as an organism, but death itself is a matter of having moral status or, or not. Piotr Novak doesn't recommend we go quite so far as to ditch the whole idea of death. But he suggests that we should understand death not primarily as a loss of organic function, but a loss of a specific kind of moral status. So it's a moral rather than biological definition of dying. Moral status is... Uh, 
technical terms used by uh, philosophers. The sense of the term is that uh, if someone or something has moral status, that means that its interests morally matter or, it, or they matter somehow uh, to the well-being of that entity. In other words, uh, when we say that something or someone has moral status, that means that uh, that thing or that person has some kind of uh, well-being. So if we define death as um, cessation of moral status, that would mean some, uh, that uh, death appears in a moment then one cannot be anymore harmed or wronged. And the opposite is true also, that one is alive till the moment uh, when uh, one could be harmed or wronged. As we'll see in next week's program, the idea that the dead can't be harmed or benefited is a surprisingly controversial one. But the technological pressures on our old definitions of death aren't going to go away. If anything the biological and technical landscape to which philosophers must respond is only going to get weirder. For example, at the moment, we are capable to grow teeny brains from stem cells. At the moment, they are very teeny, uh, but it might happen that we will be able to grow normal size uh, human brains. So imagine that we, in future you would have this kind of situation that some person will answer the phone call with an information that her wife has suffered a terrible car accident and was determined brain dead. But actually, in this future, brain death is not this state of uh, no return because there is still an option. One can retrieve a stem cell from that, that wife's uh, body and grow a new brain for that person. So the question that might appear in this future is whether uh, adopting this kind of treatment for a person would be a way of saving uh, her life or whether it would be, would be rather an um, uh, act of creating a new life or a new person. It also might happen that uh, we will be able to grow other organs than brain, like heart, like liver, like kidneys, and so on. And if we would be able to do that, then perhaps we will not uh, need any more uh, organs retrieved from uh, brain-dead patients. Perhaps the whole controversy about brain death, whether it is death or, or not, will be not necessary to discuss anymore since we will be able to base our understanding on, of death on, on traditional criterion and still have enough organs for organ transplantation. And that program was part one of What's New in Death, produced and presented by Patrick Stokes, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University in Melbourne. In next week's program, we'll be moving from questions of dying to questions of the dead. Should we fear being dead? Can we be harmed after we're dead? And if we could escape death forever, should we want to? That's The Philosopher's Zone. You can find details of this week's guests on the website and you can catch the program anytime via the ABC Listen app. Thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.